Next, on Lectures in History, Georgetown University professor Catherine Benton-Cohen teaches a class on the Progressive Era. She talks about how politicians and reform groups in the early 20th century attempted to improve social and economic conditions through trust-busting, interstate regulation, and prohibition. She also discusses the policies and campaigns of Theodore Roosevelt, the period's most dominant political figure. Um, our goal today is to think about what, progressive, what pro progressivism was and to think about what I think its core dialectic was, the tension between democracy and efficiency. These were both ideals that people from a broad spectrum of political backgrounds in the progressive era believed were important, and they believed they were not incompatible, but you can see some ways in which they were fundamentally at some tension. So again, throughout class today, be thinking about democracy versus efficiency. So the central question for historians of the early 20th century is, what is progressivism? A famous article that came out in 1982 was entitled In Search of Progressivism, which I think aptly summed up the way historians were rummaging around, knowing that the progressive era existed, but quibbling about what counted as progressivism, who counted, when it started, when it ended. Some people limit only to the political party that it was named for. Others define it much more broadly. So for me in this class, this is how I'm going to define progressivism. In the broadest sense, progressivism was the way a whole generation of Americans defined themselves politically and how they addressed the problems of the new century in what I think we can all agree begins to look like modern America. They're interested in reforming a messy society that is new in fundamental ways while trying to keep some aspects of the old. I'm defining the progressive era as lasting from approximately 1890 through World War I. Before I subjected you all to this lecture today, I consulted with my colleague Michael Kazin, whom many of you know is an expert on populism, wrote a phenomenal biography of William Jennings Bryan, and also teaches on socialism. He teaches this class as well. And I asked Professor Kazin what he thought, uh, made sure I got rid of any howlers in my lecture. Um, luckily, there were none. And um, this is what he wrote to me, and I think this is um, actually worth kind of talking about the ways that we all... Uh, basically are on the same page, but we sort of argue about the edges. The chronology of the progressive era is always debatable. Beginning in 1890 takes in the Sherman Act, which we'll talk about today, and the beginning of Jane Addams' remarkable settlement house in Chicago called Hull House, which we'll talk about on Thursday. But in national and state politics, there were no people we'd consider progressive in power until about 1900. So he's saying if we're going to define it that way, we would push it up a little bit. If William Jennings Bryan had won that election in 1896, that would have been different. That's him speaking. Of course, the chronological scope you favor depends on what you think mattered most. 
And it's worth noting, uh, he also pointed out to me, that many populists became progressives, and that's something I'm going to talk to you about, and some of you actually already recognized that already. Um, you know, um, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about how Wilson's um, new freedom plan included many things that the populist party had proposed in the 1890s, but also many of them actually became socialists in places that we don't think of as bastions of socialism today, like Texas and Oklahoma and western states. What historians do largely agree on is that the high mark of the progressive era was in 1912, the election, uh, the four-way election between uh, Taft, Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, who decided to come out of retirement, come back from African safari, and run as the head of the Progressive Party, also known as the Bull Moose Party, as well as the fourth major candidate that year was Eugene Debs, a socialist whose readings you read today about how he came through the labor movement to consider himself a socialist. He polled 6% of the votes in that 1912 election, almost a million votes. Now, again, I think everybody across that spectrum would have defined themselves in some sense as a progressive. So, again, uh, let's put some more fine, uh, fine notes on our definition of progressive, progressivism. Progressivism was a commitment to some sort of reform in society, often using local, state, or federal governmental means. I think too often in U.S. history classes we talk about kind of the federal level of progressivism. It turns into that discussion of Wilson versus uh, Roosevelt. I want to tell you that it's really starting at the grassroots in cities and states and territories and moving upward to the federal level. It was a form of perfectionism, by which I mean the belief that society could be perfected using proper principles. And in this sense, I think it's a mood as much as a method. There's no one way of doing things if you consider yourself a progressive. But it is a kind of mood or attitude toward change and reform in society and politics, right? And that is one in which you believe that things can be improved. And in that sense, as I'm going to talk about through the rest of lecture, there's some pessimism, there's worry and concern, but there's also incredible confidence and optimism that, that society and politics and economics and democracy can Im be improved and maybe even perfected. And here we have, again, that tension between democracy and efficiency. Now, let's be honest. I wrote the first version of this lecture many, many years ago. History changes, but not that fast. And i got to tell you, this is the first year that I have actually assigned a portion of uh, Woodrow Wilson's New Freedom Plan, and I could not have invented a document better suited for the themes that I want to stress today, right? What does he compare liberty to? Y'all suddenly got shy. Yes. An engine, a machine, right? And this is perfect for all you... Mathy, sciencey, mechanically people, right? This is the perfect metaphor for the way that people think about government and politics in the early 20th century, right? The machine doesn't work well with friction, right? He wants to reduce the friction. The more efficient the machine is, the better. 
Liberty for the several parts would consist in the best possible assembling and adjustment of them all, he says. And you can see his optimism, even his, might I say, egoism as a professor, right? His optimism, human freedom consists in perfect adjustments of human interests and human activities and human energies because the trouble lies when the machine gets out of order. In other words, he's saying the government's job, quite literally, is to get under the hood and tinker with the machine to get it running right. And here again, we see also from a cultural perspective, right, I love this, this document so much. We get back to machines, right, technology, railroads, right? It's not an accident that efficiency is a concept that becomes enormously fascinating to people in the early 20th century, efficiency in both its industrial and its social components. Okay, so here's some keywords if you need to come back to them in class, um, but... Um, Oh, I forgot to tell you. Of course, I didn't start with a song because you knew I was going to screw it up. So I decided to just 86 that. Uh, But we'll come back to music on Thursday. Uh, Okay, so um, let me move forward and tell you before I get into the weeds about what progressivism looks like in this time period to give you a sense of the absolute incredible wide range of things, efforts, reforms, causes that people thought of as progressive campaigns in the early 20th century. So we've got civil service reform, cleaning up bureaucracy, conservation movement, which I know some of you are particularly interested in, and we won't dally there today, but certainly your reading emphasizes the ways in which, again, conservation as a kind of efficiency, in fact, is a famous way that many historians have written about the conservation movement. Clean milk campaigns, Right, making sure that children who drink milk that their mom purchased from a dairy that it's clean and unadulterated. Woman suffrage. There's a reason why that word is singular. They thought of women in a particular kind of way, and we'll talk a lot more about that on Thursday. Public education reinvigorated since the Reconstruction era, particularly at the local level. The expansion of public kindergartens. The establishment of some of the first public high schools. Campaign finance reform, trying to keep out those, uh, uh, those corrupt railroad owners from, uh, from um, politics. Not successful, but a worthy effort. Uh, public utility regulation, the origin of modern public utilities that are either a private corporation that's licensed to a, to a, a municipality or state, or ones that are actually publicly uh, owned and operated. Regulation of food and drugs. I know many of you took AP U.S. history. The FDA uh, originates in this time period under Theodore Roosevelt. The regulation of railroads, which had been, which is actually a kind of opening salvo of the progressive era I'll talk about in a second. Municipal ownership of utilities. I talked about that. Temperance or prohibition, the outlawing of alcohol. Social work, the modern field of social work, then as now dominated by women. Anti-prostitution and anti-pornography campaigns in the form of what was called the white slavery movement, saving women from what we would call today sex trafficking. So you can see a strong moral element and protective element to this campaign. The campaign for legal birth control, which was um, the Comstock Act of the late 19th century, made even discussing, disseminating any kind of information about birth control um, illegal. Election reform, which I'll talk about particularly on the state level in just a few minutes. So 
okay, maybe I put these sort of, I'm making some judgments, some of these I'm seeing as positives because I've put at the bottom, but also coercive social control of welfare clients, forced attempts to strip new immigrants of their culture in the name of Americanization or assimilation, voter disfranchisement in um, the name of clean government, segregation in the South as a sign of efficiency, uh, prohibition, and later eugenics. I know I whipped through that really quickly. That's fine. No worries. Those are illustrative. We don't have to get into all the details, and some of these I'll return to you. But I want to say we're talking about from clean milk to voter initiatives, right? We're talking about from kindergarten to funding higher ed, from kindergarten to the first PhD programs in the United States, right? A really wide variety of things. And you can see in the, in the examples, I've, I've noted here again this relationship uh, a little bit between democracy and efficiency, right? And, and, and Wilson talks about this in terms of liberty, that liberty works best in an efficient capacity, right? And you could see just in a random example of clean milk, which was a campaign that many women reformers campaigned for, because um, companies adulterated milk with chemicals to make it seem like it would last longer and to keep it white, and it poisoned children. Well, Liberty would say we're not going to interfere with regulations for dairies, right? Efficiency would say uh, maybe our, our, our society would work better if children didn't die from adulterated milk, right? Um, and so you can see that's a one tiny example, but actually something that was very important to people in the early 20th century. Okay, why these two obsessions with democracy and efficiency? Could these be compatible? Where does this come from? Okay, so what I want to talk about is the way in which, um, and I, we can go back to the slides here. Oop, that's a different computer. Okay. Um, what I want to talk about is the way that what we talk about as progressivism as a national movement, as I suggested, actually bubbles up more from the grassroots, even though it comes to be known as this thing that's a kind of, you know, government by experts. It's a national movement built from regional movements. So what you have, simplified, you know I like geography, Midwestern and Northeastern urban concerns, the concerns about urbanization, overcrowding, immigration, industrialization, right? Political machines, political corruption. You have, on the one hand, that great mass of demands for change, concerns, the rise of political figures like Theodore Roosevelt. Those meet up with the more rural and agrarian concerns of Southern and Western populism, right? Populism, it may not seem so today as much to us now, where I think we generalize rural America. A few of you are from more rural places. The Midwestern corn, uh, you know, commodity culture was a very different kind of agrarian economy than the South's cotton-based sharecropping vestiges of Jim Crow, yet they found enough common cause briefly to unite um, in populism that didn't last, right? But part of it was about this feeling of the rural places being left behind. Some of the political, electoral success of the progressive era in the early 20th century was that these Midwestern and Northeastern urban concerns were able to find, in some cases, common cause with these folks that had been former populists, particularly around issues like regulating interstate commerce, regulating the railroads, starting to talk about conservation. In fact, 
After 1900, populism and progressivism basically merge, as, prof as Professor Kazin's comments suggested. Populists essentially become progressives, except for those who stay yet more radical and join the Socialist Party. Intellectually, they're inspired by social gospel theory. You read an example of that today, right? A rather, um, I don't want to say aggressive, but assertive campaign by many religious leaders, predominantly Protestant, though there were some Reformed Jews active in this movement as well, who said, we need to realize that we can't be just focused on the afterlife, right, and the spiritual life. We also have to think about life here on earth, right? So Rauschenbusch talks about what it means to think about Jesus's work today, here, and now, right? And that social gospel theory also informs this progressive work, right? Woodrow Wilson comes from an entire family of ministers, right? Most of these folks definitely feel a sense of Christian mission. This is wedded to the invention of new social science, Disciplines like sociology, political science, economics, history, their first professional associations emerge in this time period. As I mentioned, the first PhD programs in social sciences that are literally creating experts, right, open at places like Johns Hopkins, the Ivy Leagues, uh, schools like the University of Wisconsin woot woot, and Michigan, right? University of California, those giant public research institutions alongside the kind of um, old stalwart um, prestige institutions and new upstarts like Hopkins and University of Chicago, which are designed to create these graduate programs like Europe has. And the idea is that they're going to produce not just, you know, pointy-headed professors like me, but experts that are going to go out and solve social problems, find the answers, find the efficient answer, right? Woodrow Wilson has a PhD from Johns Hopkins. He's the president of Princeton before he becomes the governor of New Jersey and the president of the United States. Okay, so what's bothering them? And we'll review this, and you, I think, know what many of these things are. We can talk about a few of their motivations in terms of fears, Fears of new capitalism. As companies grow larger and larger and capitalism becomes more and more impersonal, I'm talking really fast. I want to step back and have you think about that. Think about a 19th century world where your neighbor might have chickens in her yard, right, to sell eggs and you know her, right, and her eggs aren't going to be rotten because she doesn't want to rip you off because you have a face-to-face -face relationship, right? Or you're a farmer that goes to the, lake, the local um, grain elevator. You know that operator. Uh, you're not selling at a fixed rate across hundreds of miles on the Southern Pacific Railroad, right, where, where you have to pay a certain rate. You can't negotiate. You don't know who your seller is, right? I think we take for granted global capitalism's impersonal nature, right? When you all get things from Amazon Prime, you're not thinking about who's pulling it off the warehouse shelf and putting it in a box and putting that label on and sending it to you, right, like people were used to face-to-face -face transaction. This was threatening. This was a real change, right? And they feared that the outsized power of huge corporations would ruin democracy. The runaway railroad industry, as I mentioned, was just one example. The journalists called muckrakers were revealing the devious methods of companies like Armor Meats and Standard Oil, 
writing long exposés in popular magazines, and this reflected both the real changes, right, that are happening in American capitalism, as well as the anxieties that those produce in Americans. Speaking of anxieties in Americans, fear of new Americans, that is, fear of new immigrants. And we'll talk about this in much more detail in the coming weeks. The cities are filling with people. Many Americans have deep discomfort about immigration, even though many of them are the children of immigrants themselves. New immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe constitute an unprecedented wave of new arrivals from about 1882 to 1920. 18 to 24 million new immigrants come to the United States in this exact same time period we're calling the Progressive Era. Okay? At its peak, they represent almost 15% of the American population a figure we have never exceeded. We came very close in 2007 before the recession, but those are sort of parallels, right? Think, I don't need to tell you what a hot issue immigration is right now, okay? Which, and actually our numbers are way down from a decade ago. Okay, but in that sense, from, a, from, a, from the standpoint of the proportion of the American population who were immigrants, similar. Different places, though. They're from Southern and Eastern Europe. But they're also often feared in the same ways. They are predominantly Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Jewish. They seem unassimilable. They're very poor. They tend to congregate in urban places in a country that still believes itself to be of rural origin. African Americans are starting to move in what will become the Great Migration, migrating like Ida B. Wells did from the rural south to the urban south to the urban north. Close to 2 million African Americans moved from the south to north between 1890s and 1910. Many northern whites are confronted with mixed populations for the first time. The transition of African Americans to urban life is difficult. They are predominantly rural people, not used to city life, facing, obviously, segregation in the North as well as the South, horrible overcrowded conditions, pitiful public health, lack of utilities like safe water, sewer, and electric face many city residents. And there's a little bit of a chicken-egg debate among more privileged Americans. Are these new immigrants and African Americans from the South the cause of the poor conditions, or are the poor conditions thus producing the inequalities that are evident for all Americans to see, right? And this is really kind of a central question in the Progressive Era, right? Which eventually, in spite of all the prejudice, I would argue comes um, to what we could call, and it's not going to mean what you think it is, environmentalism. And what I mean by that is the belief that one's environment shapes their outcomes. So if you can improve the environment, you will improve the quality of Americans, right? I don't know why I'm on clean milk today, okay? That would be a perfect example, right? Urban dwellers who don't have their own cow to milk to have fresh, clean milk from the farm and have to buy milk, they're going to have poor health outcomes if they don't have good, nutritious food, right? Is the problem the poor city dweller? Is the problem the conditions that they're dealing with? (coughs) Now... Remember what I talked about, how the ideal, when we talked about Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller and the gospel of wealth, and we talked about the fact that 
um, this recognition of class difference as a fundamental feature of American society was profoundly threatening to many people and many, not coincidentally, middle and upper class folks, rejected the idea that there would be permanent class distinctions in the U.S. And one of the things they worried about did they worry about the you know, economic inequality? Yes. But they worried about whether a democracy could function with those kinds of entrenched, seemingly irreparable differences, right? They worried about the state of democracy. Would all of these new citizens know how to operate in a democracy? Would they be good citizens, right? I'm going to use the example of President Theodore Roosevelt the month before the 1912 election, just so I can clarify for you. He's not currently president, right? He is. Uh, he ascends to the presidency with McKinley's assassination. He serves out his terms, and then he says, well, I'm going to hand the baton to Taft, who'd been his vice president. Taft runs, serves one term from 1908 to 1912, Roosevelt gets super annoyed that Taft is far more conservative. Theodore Roosevelt wants to move faster on progressive maneuvers, right? And he's frustrated with Taft. So he says, you know what, screw it, I'm going to run against this guy that I anointed to be the next president. I'm going to start a new party. I mean, this is chutzpah, right? I'm going to start a new party. I'm going to endorse women's suffrage. I'm going to ask Jane Addams, the most famous woman in America, if you don't know who she is yet, look her up. We're going to talk about her Thursday. I'm going to ask her to nominate me at the nominating convention. So he's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is, besides the hometown of my husband, uh, a hotbed of socialism, Republican, progressive politics. Uh, Wisconsin's where the La Follettes come from. The University of Wisconsin, did I mention that, has invented this wonderful thing called the Wisconsin Idea, which is the picture of progressivism. Right? It is the idea that the university, the public university, should be in the service of the state. Right? It's going to produce experts and answers and solve social problems. So he's in Milwaukee. This is a place he thinks he can get a lot of Republican and progressive votes. He's giving a campaign speech and an angry saloon keeper. It's not hard to find a saloon keeper in Milwaukee. Tries to assassinate him. His speech is so thick, it is so long, that it protects him from the bullet. And he's like, oh, I'm fine, and he gives the speech. True story. Here's one of the things he says in the speech. Now, friends, what we progressives are trying to do is to enroll rich or poor, whatever their social or industrial position, to stand together for the most elementary rights of good citizenship, those elementary rights which are the foundation of good citizenship in this great republic of ours. Eventually, reformers begin to look to local and federal government for solutions. They're afraid of class division, as I mentioned, right? The major strikes, starting with 1877 and the Great Uprising, the railroad strike, the 1880s, Haymarket Massacre, right? 1890s, American Railway Union and the Pullman strike that Eugene Debs emerges as a leader. Early 1900s, a coal strike that Theodore Roosevelt helps uh, hammer out an agreement to. Many Americans, as I mentioned, see the United States splitting into two camps, labor and capital. Labor organizing is accelerating. 
union membership in 1911 on the eve of this 1912 election is five times what had been in 1897, right? Think about that. That would be like, trust me, this didn't happen. That would be like if since 2004, the number of labor union members multiplied by five times. New immigrants are creating low-wage labor competition, right? There's no minimum wage. It's a race to the bottom. They and African Americans often work as strike breakers, fueling divisions among industrial workers who are trying to organize. Manufacturers and employers openly try to pit one immigrant group against another so that they can't organize, right? Um, or African Americans against whites, as we talked about in mill work in the South. Okay, so 60 years ago, a very famous historian named Richard Hofstetter. My husband actually does know who Richard Hofstetter is, for the record, but whenever I say that somebody's famous, he says history famous or famous famous. Okay, Richard Hofstetter is history famous. Uh, he argued 60 years ago that the progressives were worried about status anxiety. Basically, that they were middle and upper class uh, wasps who felt frightened by their place in a changing world. It was a deeply psychological interpretation that reflected the popularity of Freudianism at the time. Right, because remember we talk about historiography can't help but absorb the moment in which it's created. We know that he exaggerated in the sense that these folks were as much optimistic as they were anxious about status. This missed the fact that many Catholic, Jewish, and working class immigrant organizers shared many of the same goals as progressives. But having said all that, I think it's still a useful way to think about the phenomenon of progressivism, right? That on the one hand, there's this general insecurity about the state of society and about how its enormous social problems can be solved. There's this recognition of a fundamental change in the economy, a kind of sobering realization that industrial capitalism is here to stay, at least it is in 1912. It's a different story in 2019, right? But also this kind of optimism of, like, we can do something about this, right? This isn't existential, paralyzing fear. This is, we've got a problem. Let's roll up our sleeves, get some doctoral degrees, and solve it. By the way, they didn't see those as antithetical ideas, right? Okay. So the bottom line is that progressive reform appealed to those who had something to lose, right, including their status in society. So they're fearful but not hopeless, right? Maybe that seems like a contradiction, but again, what I want to emphasize is if there's one thing they share, it's this enormous confidence that social and economic conditions can be improved, maybe even solved. And you can see that in Wilson's you know, fascination with making this machine of liberty be as frictionless as possible. Now, this may reflect a politics professor's lack of knowledge <laughs> about engineering and friction, but nevertheless, he's bringing book knowledge to this problem, assuming that we can solve the problems of democracy. I'll give you another example. Just put it this way. Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt are very, very different kinds of people, and I suspect you all know that, right? But who is more confident than Theodore Roosevelt? He's got a big stick, right? I mean, this guy, there is nothing that won't stop him, right? He runs right over his vice president. He's anointed to be president. He starts a new political party. He's like, you know, the kid that never gets picked at, the, at recess, and then he reinvents himself as a South Dakota rancher, right? 
he is very confident. He really shows, I think, this progressive idealism and confidence, right? And for him, of course, that comes from a position of privilege. Like, don't tell Theodore Roosevelt he can't do something. He can't fix this great nation, right? That is born and bred into him. Women, though. One of my favorite things about teaching the progressive era is that this isn't one of these deals where the famous, history famous, uh, women's history professor Gerda Lerner said, um, well, there's an early stage of women's history called add women and stir, right? Like your, your pot of history doesn't have any women in it, just throw them in and ch- like chocolate chips. It's slightly better, but it's, you know, still the same thing, right? You cannot understand the progressive era unless you include women from top to bottom. Women were central to this reorganizing of liberty, freedom, democracy, and efficiency, right? You know I'm going to bring up clean milk again. I think it's the Wisconsin thing, right? It's not the men who are all about this. It's the women, right? This is the height of the women's suffrage movement, which we'll talk about in much more detail on Thursday, right? But even beyond women's suffrage, right? Even beyond women's suffrage, women are involved in prohibition, which we're going to end with, right? They're attending higher institutions of higher education in unprecedented numbers. They're going to graduate school. They're getting PhDs. Of course, this is mostly middle and upper class white women, Middle-class and upper-class black women as well, although their numbers are much smaller, right? In fact, they are actually much more likely to have careers than white, middle, and upper-class women, partly because their husbands can't often uh, make a living that the family can afford to live on. Women reflect and capitalize on this confidence. Women are newly confident in the progressive era, right? They believe they have the power to make change. They are appearing in public fora. Jane Addams is nominating Roosevelt as the progressive party nominee. They also have confidence in the ability of the government to to solve social problems. They share with progressive era men this idea, wait for it, that bureaucracy is a good thing. They believe in bureaucracy. In fact, they want more of it. Wilson's proposal to make liberty more efficient is through bureaucracy. They don't think that's a paradox. They believe in good government, right? (coughs) Okay, that brings me to the last big picture point I want to make. Progressives are not radicals. It's important to recognize that progressivism was a form, uh, I'm sorry, it was a set of reform movements, not radical movements, right? And in fact, in a certain sense, progressivism was actually conservative in the sense that progressives wanted to perfect something they think already existed, right? They were ultimately optimists, and perfectionists who believe that you could perfect society with enough planning and careful organization, right? We can see that many progressives saw progressivism as a way to stem radicalism, right? To cut increasingly popular radical movements off at the knees by decreasing their need by solving the obvious social problems that socialists, anarchists, and communists were beginning to name and address, right? 
So Roosevelt and Wilson, although they disagree on many things, are saying, let's regulate, not have a revolution, right? We recognize that railroads are a problem. We recognize that workers probably need an eight-hour day. We don't think that we have to give up the whole thing to anarcho-syndicalists. We think we can tinker at the margins and fix this thing, right? Even Eugene Debs, good example. Yeah, he's a socialist. He runs five times for president. In 1908, he runs from prison where he's been jailed because of uh, actions to do with, his, uh, with the strike he was involved in and um, inflammatory statements he's supposedly made. But even he, he's not staging a revolution. He's running for president, right? Even that, that's not, you know, he's not bombing people like what maybe happened at Haymarket. He's part of the system too. I brought up Senator Albert Beveridge from Indiana, the proponent of um, imperialism, who was uh, an important voice for Roosevelt in the Senate when Roosevelt was president. And he said this about Theodore Roosevelt. He said that Theodore Roosevelt's brilliance was in differentiating that species of anarchism, which we popularly term Bolshevism, so isolating Bolshevism or radicalism, from that form of normal progress called liberalism. So I guess in modern terms, we would call this a liberal, not a radical, right? I'm not really sure I'm prepared to call Roosevelt a liberal. That might be Albert Beveridge's view, but I think you see the analogy there. By making capitalism safer for the individual and less monopolistic, by making urban life cleaner and safer and more organized... The appeal of radicals like anarchists and socialists who were increasingly powerful and popular in this period would be diminished. That was the goal, right? All right. Whew. The Progressive Era contained such a wide range of different movements and causes it would be impossible to discuss even a portion of them. This is one of the most studied eras in American history precisely because it's so complex and internally contradictory. So today what I want to do is just offer you a couple of examples of what I would call economic and political progressivism, and I'm going to emphasize the way that political progressivism comes out of municipalities and states first. And then I'm going to end with prohibition because I think prohibition really is emblematic. It's in some ways the quintessential progressive reform. It's an excellent bridge to talking about women and immigrants on Thursday, right? It involves both of them in important ways. And I think it's also the quintessential progressive reform that we've forgotten about because it's so deeply unfashionable, right? As I speak to college students, as I've referenced Milwaukee several times, right? So... Um, it wasn't popular there, I'll tell you that. Okay, so um, I want to I rehab... I, well, I don't know if I want to rehabilitate it. That might be too big a task. But I want to resuscitate its centrality to the progressive era because I think it sheds light on sort of the pros and cons of progressive causes. Okay. So let's talk about economic and political progressivism. The two I want to talk about in particular, the two laws 
that I think, excuse me, exemplify the antitrust movement, which begins economic progressivism, are the Interstate Commerce Act and the Sherman Antitrust Act. Okay. These both come out of the populist movement, right? They reflect an anti-monopoly tradition. And we haven't talked a lot about anti-monopolyism. I, I mentioned it briefly when I talked about populists, but I think it's fair to say that in the late 19th century, monopoly was one of the central concerns of the American people. And it touched on many of the things I've already mentioned to you. The idea that some people have an unfair advantage over others. The diminishing of the importance and power of the individual, right? And the increasingly abstract nature of industrial capitalism, right? Monopoly offended 19th century Americans in a way that was deeply fundamental because they saw themselves as a nation of individualism and that individualism was central to freedom and democracy, right? And so while we might say, oh, that was freedom of business or what have you, they saw monopoly not just in the increasing combinations of American business, but in the political power that those folks had, um, even in things like um, uh, the vice trade, so this campaign against what I call white slavery, um, sex trafficking. The reformers, most of whom were sort of municipal Republican politicians and women reformers, the reformers most active in this movement believed that there was a vice monopoly. They saw some sort of secretive cabal that was organizing white slavery around the world, right? Whisking women um, unwilling across international lines for this international sex syndicate. The reality is it was not as organized as they thought, but I think it's very, very telling that they, when they saw a problem, they feared monopoly, right? And that's where the kind of general ability in a nonpartisan way to address trusts come from. Now, trusts don't go away, right? And anybody who studies American business now knows that it's bigger than ever. But this effort to dismantle what people saw as unfair business combinations comes out of that anti-monopoly tradition. Okay, so the really um, kind of landmark example uh, or uh, piece of legislation is the Interstate Commerce Act, which passes in 1887. This comes out of many state attempts to regulate railroads. You all, Emily and I talked about it, you did a terrific job talking about Plessy v. Ferguson last week, and we both wish that we had had much more time to talk about it. We feel like there's so much more to say. I know in my section we talked about that it was not an accident this happened on a railroad, right? And in that case, it was a state law uh, that Plessy was challenging. But uh, many states, like uh, especially states like Nebraska that had strong populist support, tried to pass laws to regulate railroads and railroad rates in their states. And the Supreme Court overruled those laws, um, overturned them, saying... Railroads engage in interstate commerce, and any regulation of them has to be at the federal level. So Congress finally responds and passes the Interstate Commerce Act, which uh, is really a watershed moment because it means that the federal government, for the first time, is turning toward what we would now call a regulatory state, right? And the Interstate Commerce Commission becomes a model for this hybrid of executive and legislative 
and judicial branch in a commission. Okay, what do I mean by that? The Interstate Commerce Act created a five-person commission to regulate railroads. Okay, this commission was thus removed from some of the winds of, of politics that the legislative branch might be, for example, right? So these are appointed positions that can decide things like railroad rates, solve railroad disputes. This is an expansion of executive power that we now think is normal but was really a turning point, okay? It had many weaknesses. It couldn't proactively regulate. It relied on lawsuits to bring action, so you had to have the wherewithal to actually bring a suit to the ICC if you wanted to challenge something, which obviously favored big business over small. Railroad attorneys, whom I mentioned to you were the first corporate attorneys in the United States, could tie up these cases for years. But even if the ICC in its early years was weak, it created, right, it created this precedent for this dominant form of regulatory government, the independent appointed commission, right? And I bet you can think of a whole bunch of independent appointed commissions. I wrote a book about one, the Dillingham Commission. That's not the one you thought of, but you might have thought, for example, the 9-11 Commission, right? Which is in some ways the, more, the most recent and famous example of a precedent set by the ICC. I'll give you an example of how in the weeds the ICC could get, though. I literally just found this out two weeks ago. I went to a workshop on Jewish genealogy, and I, and I didn't even use genealogical sites for this. I Googled my great-grandfather's name, and I found out that he was involved in a case that he and his business partner took to the Interstate Commerce Commission in, I want to say, 1919, in which you want to talk about small potatoes. They had an argument with the uh, Topeka, Atchison, and Santa Fe Railroad. They were junk dealers. They were Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. They owned a company that sold secondhand scrap iron and metal. These are not titans of industry. They sued the railroad over what they thought was an unfair rate for used beer bottles. Holy cow, I'm noting a theme today. Anyway, they went to the ICC and they said, this railroad is charging us too much for these truckloads of used beer bottles that we bought. And they won the case, and they got a refund of like $127 from the railroad for their multiple carloads of used beer bottles. Um, I actually didn't even know that when I started talking to you guys about populism in the railroad. I literally just found this out. But I think it's a perfect example of like, whoa, the federal government is regulating this guy's used beer bottle purchase, right, for a junk dealer in El Paso, Texas. Okay. (laughs) So that's the precedent for the Sherman Antitrust Act. Um, There's monopolies in oil, tobacco, steel, sugar industries. We've talked about a lot of those. The situation grows worse, right, with this series of Supreme Court rulings in the 1880s saying that, legally speaking, a corporation is, protect, is a person under the 14th Amendment. It means that corporations cannot be denied life, liberty, or property without due process of the law, and this invalidates many of those state monopoly laws, as I mentioned to you. In response, Congress passes the Sherman Antitrust Act, um, It makes any, quote, restraint of trade or commerce in interstate commerce illegal. 
Not unlike the ICA, it's, well, it's enforced with fines and lawsuits, although these are suits that can be brought by public district attorneys. It's used against clear monopolies and cartels, that is, secret agreements that engage in rate fixing. So this is actually the kind of thing, although it was an ICC matter because of railroad, that my great-grandfather would have complained about. He would have said, you know what, the Southern Pacific and the Topeka Atchison they, they've fixed rates, right? I don't have a choice. They, th- you could call that um, a, a cartel or a secret agreement. So it's supposed to outlaw that. It's not effective against holding companies. They're not able to prosecute these companies that are sort of shell companies that own, own a bunch of different companies. Um, but it's in this context, right? How many of you have heard of Theodore Roosevelt as the trust buster? Yeah, it's kind of famous, right? He comes down in history as the trust buster during his presidency beginning in 1902. You probably also heard, because this is an old, you know, old saw in U.S. history classes, that he wasn't really all that antitrust. There were plenty of corporations and corporate barons that he liked. But he supported the Sherman Antitrust Act as a good tool to attack what he called bad trusts, right? So uh, Roosevelt had his idea of good trusts and bad trusts, and he used this tool, and this is indicative, right, of sort of the power and danger of these new executive power tools, if you will. Use the Sherman Antitrust um, Act to create a regulatory commission to pursue corporations using, uh, that he thought were using bad or unfair methods, In his inaugural address, Roosevelt made a powerful plea for the right of the federal government to intervene in unfair practices and curb capitalist abuses. Classic example of reform, not revolution. In practice, antitrust laws could definitely backfire, at least from the standpoint of the people who had first championed them, Because just as the 14th Amendment could protect corporations as persons, antitrust laws could be used against things like farmers' co-ops and labor unions. So you could use the Sherman Antitrust Act to go after one of these farmers' cooperatives that populist-minded farmers created so that they could negotiate for better rates and better prices uh, for their commodities, right? Well, that was a trust sometimes in the eyes of the law, right? Similarly, if a labor union organized a boycott, the target of their boycott could go to the Sherman, uh, could go and and argue that this is, um, that this was a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. But again, this theme, right? This is reform, not revolution. Roosevelt wants to make the market safe for individuals, not dismantle it. Okay. So those are some examples of economic reform, which, with respect to this question of monopoly, were also seen as political reforms, right? These were deeply connected in people's minds, right? That making the world uh, safer for individuals in industrial capitalism was was analogous to the ways that progressives wanted the individual to retain their power in an increasingly large and abstract democracy. Okay, So let me turn to some political reforms. (coughs) So progressives champion a bunch of reforms that are aimed at creating direct democracy. What does that mean? 
It means bringing political decisions straight to the people rather than to intermediaries like political machines and state legislatures. Here is an example with political reform that we see the very direct influence of the populists on the progressive era, right? The populists who, belie- who believe that farmers who were the salt of the earth, the bedrock of the nation, had lost political power, right? They wanted to see power return to the individuals. Okay. So progressive reformers really hated political machines. Someone take a stab at what a political machine is. I'm sure many of you studied this in class. Yeah. It's like a collective of basically um, powerful, usually men, and they kind of choose who they want to sort of run the city and whatnot, and they get people elected, and they do it through intimidation tactics, through voting and whatnot. So those are the bosses, right? And the machine, note the analogy with the machine, right? They're literally called machines. I'm telling you, people are really into machines in the late 19th century, right? Absolutely. So it's this group of powerful, basically rainmakers, right, kingpins, who offer a kind of quid pro quo for voters who then become the cogs in the machine, right? I'll make sure that you get a free turkey on Thanksgiving if you vote for my candidate, right? I'll build a big, big courthouse that goes 100 times over budget, but I'll make sure you and your cousin get jobs on it, right? Most political machines were Democratic, The most famous was Tammany Hall in New York City. There were absolutely some Republican political machines on the municipal level. It depended on the city and the situation. Reformers saw political machines as hopelessly corrupt, right? This idea of a kind of direct quid pro quo enraged them, right? Defenders said, actually... So this was the defense of one of the defenses of Tammany Hall. They said, actually, we take all these new immigrants, this is mid-19th century, all these Irish immigrants fresh off the boat, they've never had democracy, right? They've never had a full belly. They've been in ancient European feudalism. We show them what it means to be an American citizen. We show them how the voting process works. We get them involved. We get them jobs. We get them to the ballots, right? We're teaching them about the American political system, right? The reformers say that's shenanigans. It's not the goal of, the, of politics to have this direct quid pro quo. We're supposed to have good government. It's supposed to be about these abstract ideals. And so you start to see these attacks that are increasingly effective on the political machines. And this is often a fairly regional Activity On the federal level, it comes in the version of the Pendleton Act of 1883, which creates civil service reform, right? Says, instead of us just filling the federal bureaucracy, which, by the way, in 1883 is quite small, right? Instead of filling it with a bunch of political hacks through machine politics that you did a favor for them or they gave you a bunch of money and they're going to get a job, they have to pass the civil service exam, right, to show that they are objectively um, qualified for the job. Well, you can imagine that these exams could be very discriminatory, right? In the same way that you hear about SATs and racial and class discrimination, right? These might ask for a kind of book learning that really wasn't necessary for being a railway clerk, right? Or or pass a civil service exam to have some kind of job that's that really doesn't require that kind of knowledge, right? So, so you know, many uh, immigrants and, and working classes resented this process. That's the federal version, which in fairness is a reaction to the assassination of President James Garfield 
by a deranged office seeker, uh, a guy seeking a job who's mentally ill and shoots him, and this is one of the political response responses. But on the municipal and state level, there are other efforts as well. The Australian ballot, the secret ballot, right? This is meant to curb political machine influence because then if you vote secretly, if no one knows what your vote is, you don't really owe the political boss anything, right? In the era when you went to go vote in the local saloon and there was one box for the Democrats and one box for the Republicans, right? If your political boss saw you put your, your ballot in the wrong box, you were, you were out of turkey at Thanksgiving, right? But more seriously, probably a job. At-large elections, eliminating ward government. The machine system was based on a coalition of powerful neighborhood or ward bosses, right? Many urban reformers campaigned for at-large elections. So rather than, like in Washington, D.C., we have eight wards, right? And each of them have uh, members of the city council. At-large elections eliminated those, special, those different wards to eliminate that kind of small political favor. What is one of the consequences, though, of eliminating ward elections in a diverse city? Yes. Okay, so you don't have a smaller constituency that you address. What are some demographic realities of that as well? Who's from... Okay, yeah. Wealthier people will probably dominate. Who else? Let's say you have a city that's majority white, but three wards are predominantly immigrant. If you eliminate wards, yes? Minorities go unrepresented. That's exactly right. So the idea was, so for example, I'll use Chicago as an example in the 19th century, a hive of machine politics, right? Chicago is renowned for the corruption in city government, right, in this time period and especially. But I will say this. Chicago City Council had African-American aldermen at the turn of the century. Why? Because it had ward politics and the South Side elected its own aldermen, right? That would not have been the case without ward politics. So that was sort of the, the, the two sides to that story. At-large elections vastly reduced immigrant participation. This became a huge issue in the civil rights movement, and many cities that had at-large elections switched back to or established ward elections for the first time. Another example of taking uh, power from the people to make democracy more efficient was city government by experts. So a lot of this happens on the municipal level. So this is city governments that have a city manager or a commission-style government. These are much more common in the Midwest, South, and West for this reason. Their city governments are newer. Many of these places were established, incorporated, during the Progressive Era, right? We talk about people being born digital now. They were born progressive, okay? The quintessential example, oh, here's our trust guy. Oh, you knew I was going to do this out of order. The quintessential example is Galveston, Texas in 1900. Devastating hurricane killed between six and 12,000 people. Literally wiped out the city council and the mayor. 
reformers said, well, this is sad, but it's also a great opportunity. We can try out this newfangled idea that reformers have of commission government, where we actually just have this commission, a board of appointed commissioners that act like a city manager and run the city. They eliminated African-American aldermen by changing this political system. They appointed experts to run the commission. And so in 1900, Galveston creates the first commission government with hundreds of towns in the South and the West following. Almost half of American towns and cities today have a commissioner or city manager government. So a city manager government is a model in which you may have an elected mayor, but they're called a weak mayor. I mean, not to their face. It's a weak mayor system, right, where they have limited powers and the day-to-day functioning of the city government is done by an, ele- uh, sorry, an appointed paid city manager. The West, as I mentioned, was a laboratory for these reforms. Because the West is literally building its towns and states during this period, right? Arizona, New Mexico, and Oklahoma are are territories at the beginning of the Progressive Era. And the West uses at-large elections, part-time mayor, commission, and city manager models. (coughs) My hometown, Tempe, Arizona, has a city manager. It was incorporated during the Progressive Era. I'll give you an example of how this works. I love this example because it's a great civics lesson. My high school government teacher taught at my high school for 35 years. He was an alum. He was also the mayor. He taught the zero to fifth hour and skipped his prep because he had a half-time job as mayor because the city manager ran the city. His full-time job was teaching high school government. And then in the afternoons, he went to city hall and he was the mayor. And he could do that because it was a city manager system. It also was nonpartisan elections. This was another progressive reform you can see how that also can potentially eliminate the power of ward politics, right? It can't organize around party elections and choosing um, uh, primary nominees, right? The idea is that good government is good government. It shouldn't matter what party, right? So many of these towns had nonpartisan elections. (coughs) He went on to become a member of Congress. It's it's a very Mr. Smith goes to Washington story. (coughs) One of the most popular and controversial progressive political reforms was a set of methods to bring voting to the people. And that was a set of of efforts, again, which predominated in the West and still do, the initiative, referendum, and recall. Okay, I'm sure we have people from California here, and I think we have maybe someone from Colorado. Anyone want to take a stab at what the initiative, referendum, and recall are? Yes. Okay, I don't know for sure, but I am from Colorado. Okay. Uh, so recalling is taking an elected official out of office by voting the people. Right. Um, referendum is an initiative, not an initiative, but something gets voted on by the people and then put into law. Mm-hmm. And then an initiative is something brought by the people as an issue that You got it. You're High school government teachers would be so pleased. That's exactly right. And I'm glad you're from Colorado, which is an exemplar of this model, right? The initiative is you run around and get ballot signatures from X many voters. You get it on the next ballot. You vote. The, the, the public votes for it, right? And 
up or down, right? This is a classic direct democracy, right? You don't see the authority of passing a new law to the legislature. You literally let the voters decide, right? Referendum is legislature passes a law, it's unpopular or they're nervous about it, they pitch it back to the people to give it a, a yay or nay. Same thing, pretty direct democracy, right? We call election, only some states have this, right? And it is the ability to recall an elected official. In rare cases, I gave this example of Arizona, you can even recall judges, it almost never happens. Um, I'm not sure it's ever happened, actually. But in any case, right, the recall is a way that the people have a way to discipline indirect democracy, right? If someone is not representing the people's interests, they can recall them, right? So uh, the intention was that these things would bring politics closer to the people. The evidence over a century is that probably, in some cases, the opposite has happened, right? That these kinds of elections are especially vulnerable to special interests and large campaigns that can sway the outcome, right? Um, did not turn out exactly as the reformers had wished. <clears throat> okay, I want to present to you, as I promised that I would, that the South, that uh, Jim Crow was a, Jim Crow as progressivism can fit into this model, although it might seem strange to say so. You might see the way in which those state constitutions, starting with the Mississippi Plan of 1890 and moving through the late 19th century, represented the triumph of, we can call them what they were, white supremacists who valued efficient government over democratic government, right? Remember how they saw Reconstruction. They saw it as corruption, right, fueled by uneducated, unprepared voters, new voters, formerly enslaved people, right? Rather than saying, let's make better citizens of our citizenry, they said, let's remove those citizens from the voting population, right? In this sense, like I said, Jim Crow was in some ways the ultimate expression of good government and efficiency. If, this is Southern, you know, Southern leaders talking, not me, if we make sure people are literate, right, that they've paid their poll taxes so they're responsible and upstanding, right, if they come from a tradition of upright, good government and their grandfathers could vote, Notice how race is lurking but not, not vocalized. Then we'll have a more efficient government, right? And a more efficient system. You couldn't get a more naked example of efficiency winning over democracy. And at least in my class, I know we talked briefly about how many poor white voters were disfranchised in the state of Louisiana after Jim Crow went into effect. This wasn't true in every southern state, but in Louisiana, which was profoundly dominated by a small elite, they did not view that as an accident, right? That was fine to eliminate poor white voters along with black voters in the Jim Crow era. To them, that was better efficiency and democracy.
Okay, we've made it almost to the end and I'm gonna finish on time. I know, it's hard to believe. It's a good thing it's recorded for posterity. <laughs> Talking about the South is a good place to mention the quintessential progressive reform prohibition. Prohibition was the national, really international movement to eliminate alcohol as a part of people's regular lives. Why, you might ask, did anyone want prohibition, much less get it ratified as an amendment to the Constitution? Why did people want prohibition, and who wanted it? Yes? Husbands would go off to the saloons and then abandon them and their children, and then they spend all the family's money on alcohol, and it was causing women a lot of problems. So then yeah. you got people like Carrie Nation who would go out and catch it up saloons. Yes, and I'll show you a clip of that next week. Yes, that's true, and it sounds like an exaggeration, and it sounds like a spoof, and it you know sounds like a parody. And in fact, there's some wonderful early 20th century motion pictures that are indeed spoofs of this. They're very sexist, uh, right? They're also a little funny of women tearing up saloons and men having to take care of babies because women have become political organizers and men sneaking drinks while they're babysitting their children. Ha ha, very funny, but it was rooted in a very real social problem. People drank far more even than they do today. Alcoholism was a serious problem, Right? People missed work because of it. They lost jobs. They spent their incomes on it. Domestic violence was rampant, often fueled by alcohol abuse. Right, It was, in a very real way, a kind of antecedent to Me Too movements that this was, in one sense, one portion of the popularity of prohibition was the idea that it would improve women and children's lives. Right? Francis Willard, who was the famous president, famous, famous, leader of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, one woman, right, woman, singular, that's a white middle class woman, of the WCTU, adopted advocacy for women's suffrage after getting involved in the prohibition movement, right, because she saw it as a tool for social reform, right? And we'll talk about this more, but there's two camps in the women's suffrage campaign, right? The camp that dated all the way to 1848 and the Declaration of Sentiments and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony's early version where they said, we should have the right to vote because we are equal, we are citizens, and it's our natural right, right? And remember we talked about this, there were some women who practiced civil disobedience after the 14th Amendment and just tried to go vote, and they said, it covers me, I'm just going to go do it. That begins to evolve by the late 19th and early 20th century to women are special and more righteous and more morally pure, which fits in perfectly. This is a genius tactic, right? Fits in perfectly with progressive era reform, saying we will clean up government. We will make it more efficient because we are not corrupt, right? And it's folks who are advocating that. They say some nasty things that we'll talk about on Thursday. But like, like Francis Willard, they're saying, 
It's not so much that I think that I should have the vote because women and men are equal, though I think Frances Willard probably would have said that, but she says, we need it to make these necessary changes in society, right? And she saw prohibition as just one of all kinds of reforms to cure social ills in the 20th century, and that's why her motto was, do everything. For her and for millions of other women who come to support the vote, and men too, right, there's a reason why Theodore Roosevelt endorses women's suffrage. They see the women's vote as an instrument for change as much as a change in itself. They assume, by the way, that women will vote differently than men will, which they turn out to be mostly wrong about in the early period. I'm not talking about the 21st century. (laughs) Okay, so we've talked about one major motivation for prohibition. What's another? Exactly, right? The native-born Protestants, many of them don't allow drinking in their religions, right? Most of them don't drink or don't drink publicly. But they associate political corruption, debauchery, poverty, urbanization with Catholic mostly Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, immigrants, and heavy drinking. Saloon culture, right? So many people rightfully see this as a campaign against immigrants as well. I've chosen to end with prohibition for two reasons, right? And you already guessed what they were. Uh, The first is that it was often targeted against immigrants. The second is that it was a movement that was not female only, but whose success and size is unimaginable without women's participation and leadership. And in this sense, I think, as I mentioned at the beginning of class, it's indicative of the progressive era in general. And while I always say that women belong in history, they are essential to understanding the progressive era. So on Thursday, we will turn to more details about immigration and women's lives in the early 20th century. Thanks. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.